So we're starting a fall series, and we're going to be going through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. That's why the title of the series isn't Genesis. We're not going through the whole book. You guys know how slow I preach through the Bible. Can you imagine how long it would take us to get through Genesis? <laughs> like the kids would be grown <laughs> out of the house. Yeah, so we're, we're, gonna, we're just going to do the first three chapters. Um, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and read um, Genesis um, uh, Genesis 1-1, and then we can go ahead and pray. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather, and we pray, Lord, that as we gather, we would open our hearts to you through singing and worshiping together, through coming to the table, celebrating and remembering and honoring your death on the cross for us. For through conversations afterwards, Lord, we believe this is an opportunity you have given us as a people to engage with you and engage with one another. Lord, may we spur one another on towards love and good works today. Thank you for being our king. Amen. Man, I, I love the Bible so much. The Bible is such a source of life and inspiration and joy, peace, hope for the future. It's just so full of goodness for us. And a main reason why we're going to be doing this series uh, is because Genesis is, is it's the opening of this book. The, the things we learn in the first three chapters of Genesis are these themes that we can trace throughout the rest of the Bible through to Genesis. And so this series is almost like a preparation series for future series that are coming down the road. This is a series that's going to teach us, or not teach us, we, we already know how to read the Bible, right? But it's going to give us new tools and equipment and ways to analyze the scriptures for ourselves and learn and grow together. Um, and particularly these chapters right here, Genesis 1 through 3, uh, I feel like so often when we, oh, we, we, oh thank you for that. Um, uh, so often when we um, come to this text in Genesis, uh, we are uh, trotting these verses out to have a debate over them in our culture. We, we, we come to Genesis 1, we come to Genesis 2, and we go, okay, all right, let's draw some lines in the sand. Where are you? Where am I? What do you believe? What do I believe? How could you? How dare you? Do you not honor the scriptures? Etc. Etc. And I think so often when we bring out these chapters out to debate on them, what we're training ourselves and maybe even our kids to do is that these chapters are for debating. And sometimes we miss the entire point of what the author is trying to get at, what the Lord is trying to teach us through these texts. So um, my encouragement to you and my encouragement for myself, because this is really hard for me to do, is to drop my presuppositions and cultural notions of Genesis for this series. Now, that, that's a big ask, right? Because we've all, I don't know if, if your childhood was like mine, been drilled in the right way of thinking about this. And I'd encourage you to let's drop that and let's just learn together. And one of the ways, I've got three strategies to help us look at Genesis through new eyes. And the first is a translation called Net Bible. Does anyone use Net Bible right now? Matt, thank you. 
And someone in the back who I couldn't see who it was. Oh, it was Mona? Bless you, Mona. I love you. Uh, Net Bible, it's an app you can get on your phone. It's, you can just get it on your web browser. Uh, it's a fantastic translation of the Bible. Um, I use it when I'm prepping sermons all the time because it has a million notes about why the translators chose to translate these verses this way. So it's, imagine like the footnotes at the end of your Bible, but imagine for each, each you know, it's, it's like three paragraphs for each verse. So it's really helpful. And so I think looking at this text that we're all so familiar with, with our own favorite translation of the Bible through a new translation could kind of help us shed some of these filters that we've added on over the years. And by the way, when I say, like, don't forget everything you ever learned about Genesis. You guys know Mitch Hedberg? He's a comic. Have you guys heard of this guy? No one's heard of this guy? Well, okay, thank you, Glenn. <laughs> a man of culture. <laughs> uh, he's got this great thing. He's like, I was up late at night watching an infomercial, and the guy said, forget everything you know about vacuum cleaners. And I did. And I was entranced for 30 minutes. <laughs> just learning. <laughs> yeah. So, first strategy, net Bible. Strategy number two, reading and rereading. This is how... Uh, they were taught to read the scriptures in Jesus' time. When Jesus was, was a little boy, he was taught to read and reread the scriptures over and over and over again. And that's what we're going to do during this series. If you're not currently have a reading plan, or you're not in the middle of like, you know, some awesome book like Ecclesiastes or something right now, if you're in Leviticus, I know you're going to do this with us. Uh, but we have a reading plan. Uh, that we're going to release every Sunday afternoon for the following week. And you're going to be reading the chapter that we're teaching out of next Sunday. And you're going to read other chapters in the Bible that have to do with next Sunday. And you're actually going to end up reading the chapter that we're in twice every week. And the goal of this is the way the Hebrews were taught to approach the scriptures was to look for common themes from beginning to end and see what was going on. Look for phrases. See what's happening. Oh, I remember this phrase. Oh, I remember this phrase. Oh, I remember this phrase. And every time we come across this phrase, or sometimes it's an idea, as we get further into the series, I'm going to really nerd out on you on biblical themes a little bit, but like, there's so many themes of the Bible that are found here in the first three chapters of Genesis that echo throughout the rest of the scriptures. So when you're reading in Jeremiah and you see the words in the beginning, what that's meant to do in you is take you all the way back to Genesis 1-1 and remember. And that's true for all of these things. Do you know how many times we'll get to heaven and earth in a second? There's so many times that this happens. So what we're going to do to help us gain a new lens perhaps on Genesis is to read and reread and read reread over and over and over again. And the third is hermeneutical tools. Um, and if I say the word hermeneutical and it sounds like a scary word, it's not. It's, it's just the Greek word for interpretation. So hermeneutics is the study, particularly of scriptures, of interpreting it so that we can understand it in our modern context. Now, one of the most important things to do when you're doing hermeneutics, whether you're doing hermeneutics of the Iliad uh, in the Odyssey, or if you're doing hermeneutics of your grandma's letters to her boyfriend when she was 17. To understand the text, you have to understand the context in which it was written and who it was written to. 
Context is everything. Think about how many miscues you have over text message. There's just not enough context. Oh, yeah, you guys are looking at me. Okay, people with perfect text messaging skills, whatever. Jeez, it's just me. I have no, I can't relate, Daniel. I know, I know, I know some of you can, as I've gotten your text before. <laughs> We're going to ask these hermeneutical questions. Who was writing it? Where? Why? How? What were they thinking about when they were writing it? When the people were reading it, were reading it, what were they thinking about? Then we're going to do the interpretation, the hermeneutics of interpreting and understanding what it means for us today. And there's going to be, I mean, we're going to dive into some really deep scholarly work on this, which, and by the way, I just want to preface this with like scholarly work isn't this big scary thing. If I can do it, you can do it. If you've met me, you know I'm not all there, right? I've got, I've got some shortcomings, just like we all do. There's not, I mean, I am just as much for the, as the next guy for just the plain reading of the Bible, and you'll get what you need. That's how the Bible was designed, so that you can read it, the New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek, which for a long time they thought was like a special version of Greek just for the Bible. Then they found out it was just everyday Greek. It was just basic Greek, like shopping list Greek. Koine Greek. That's, that's how the Bible is designed so that you can pick it up and read it. But there's a lot of richness we lose if that's all we do. Like, for instance, if, if you're jumping into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you're just going to watch it, Avengers Endgame, the final big one, like, you'll get it, right? You'll get, oh, that purple guy bad, um, these guys are good, uh, there's a conflict, oh, that's really tough, um, oh, that was a cool sacrifice there at the end, I get it. okay, and you'll walk away having understood the movie. But if before you watch Endgame, you watch every other Marvel movie possible, Endgame is going to be rich. It's going to have so many dialogue cues, so many thematic moments. Even the music is going to make you remember and think about all these other things again. Does that make sense? So that's, that's why we're going to dive so deeply into scholarship here, is because if we have the capability to do a deep dive and understand even more what's going on, then why wouldn't we do that? Man, and by the way, if any of you want to, like, like, if I make you angry, or if you say I disagree, or I make you really happy, and you want to talk about this more, I love talking about this stuff. So let's just hang out and grab coffee and talk more about it. Or if, I, if there's a question you have, or if there's a question I have that you know the answer to, whatever, let's just, let's just talk about it. I'd love to talk about it. Okay, thank you. We can, we can put that slide away. Okay, let's dive in. Genesis 1, 1. Hey, do you want to put up the in the beginning slide for me, Tammy? Okay, I'm going to read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Huh? Video slide, you're welcome. This is what comes, this is springs to my mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I think about space and I think about planet earth and my heart is full and I'm blown away by the beauty of God. And this is not what the author was thinking about when he wrote these words. 
he had a totally different understanding of reality. So even, so this is, the, even this title, in the beginning, um, in, in Hebrew, it's the word rashith, rashith. It's all one word. And it's, it's a beautiful word. It's an invitation into a story. Our, our word for the book of Genesis comes from the Greek, which means beginning or launching or new. Um, the Hebrew word, the title they have for the book of Genesis is based off of the root of this word, in the beginning. Genesis is called basically in the beginning in the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning has this, in the way it was used, it has a, a, an invitation to a story to it, just like the phrase, once upon a time, or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And the reason why I'm sharing that, not because this is a made-up story, I'm sharing that because this is an invitation to you and I that an epic saga is about to take place. This is an invitation to character and drama and high moments and crushing defeats. And as we continue to dive into this saga, we end up finding ourselves in it. We end up seeing even the solution to our deepest needs in this saga, in this story. And I don't know about you, that makes me go, oh man, so cool. Because you can walk out of a movie theater and it'll make you feel all kinds of emotions depending on the movie. But this is our story in the beginning. And every time you see this phrase in your Bible, jump back to this moment where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm, I'm going to actually do this for us just really quickly, just to kind of example what I would like us to do during these coming weeks with the reading plan. Hebrews 1.10 says this, you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the work of your hands. John 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was fully God. The word was with God in the beginning. Isaiah 40, 21 through 23. I love the sass of Isaiah. If you've never read Isaiah, it's got some serious sass. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the very beginning? Have you not understood that from the time of the earth, uh, have you not understood from the time the earth's foundations were made? He is the one who sits on the earth's horizon. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before him. He is the one who stretches out the sky like a thin curtain, who spreads it out like a pitched tent. He is the one who reduces the rulers to nothing. He makes the earth's leaders insignificant. In the beginning. Every time we come across this phrase, we remember the power of our God, the creativity of our God, the magnitude of our God, and the work he did in the beginning. Now, I mentioned this verse. He created the heavens and the earth. When I think of heavens, I think of the galaxies, the cosmos. I think of the Milky Way. 
Think of Andromeda Galaxy, which is just a cool name for a galaxy. If any of you ladies are pregnant, baby name, Andromeda? Huh? No? I couldn't convince Jillian. I doubt I'm convinced you. <laughs> yeah. The Hebrew here, Hashemayim, the heavens, it means the, the blue dome up there. It's where the birds fly and the lights shine down. It's the heavens. Haaretz, the land, it means this land right here. For us, earth means the planet. Actually, uh, it's really fun. So Matt and Cindy are here, and they, uh, their son Caleb was playing um, the cajon just now, and we grew up in Albania together. And did you ever have Mr. Thompson at GDQ? I didn't have him in class, but okay. it was there. Okay, so Mr. Thompson was this uh, British teacher we had who, I mean, I don't know, when you're seven, everyone looks like they're super old. So I have no idea how old he was when he was there. But we were outside, and there's this portion of the playground that had dirt on it. And so me and my friends, as seven-year-old boys are wont to do, were playing in the dirt. And he came out there and said, get off the earth. <laughs> and, and we were like, oh, <laughs> I can't, Mr. Thompson. Because <laughs> for the British, the earth is dirt. Like, that's what earth means. When we use, use the word earth in American English, we always mean the planet. What, were the, what was the author thinking when he wrote the earth? A, a really excellent translation of this passage would be, in the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, that does not take away from the reality that this is what God created in any way. This is what he created. We know it. But he's thinking, in the beginning, God created everything above and everything below. It was a spanning statement. It meant he created everything, top to bottom. Isaiah 44, 24 says this, This is what Yahweh, your protector, says. The one who formed you in the womb. I am Yahweh who made everything, who alone stretched out the sky, who fashioned the earth by myself. Heavens and the earth, it's almost a euphemistic way of saying just everything. Everything. Now, why am I taking so much time talking about how they would have thought about it versus how we think about it? Um, and the reason is because we want to take some time, and I hope this deep study of the Bible, uh, if, if you're not in a place right now where the Bible is alive and fresh for you, helps us get to that place where the Bible is a living word. We get excited to dig out its depths and see what treasures lie below. Okay. So to do that, we need to do just a little bit of work on ancient cosmology. Do you want to throw up this next slide? This is a quote from John Walton, who's a, a scholar. I'm going to quote two ancient uh, Hebrew scholars, John Walton and John Salehammer today. And what's funny is that they disagree with each other about a lot of stuff, but they're both awesome. Here we go. Ancient cosmologies are narratives that describe the nature of the cosmos. 
their primary purpose is not to describe the physical material process by which the universe came into being, but to address basic worldview issues. Next slide. Who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? And who are the gods? This is what an ancient cosmology was trying to answer. Okay? Can you throw up the next slide? What do we think this is? A recipe? That's a great guess from our elder, Tony Barber. Thank you. What? Egyptian hieroglyphics? Yep. What do the hieroglyphics depict? Creation story. Who said that? Nice. Kind of, yeah. This is, this is not just... Cre- this uh, uh, creation story is very close. It's actually their cosmology. This is, this is their perspective of reality. So uh, you've got... Um, the god Noon is the first god that emerged um, from the chaotic expanse of primordial waters um, and then formed uh, Geb and Newt, who formed the earth and the sky. Do you guys see Newt up top, the lady with the stars? That's the sky. See Geb down below? And then out of Geb and Newt, you see the boat going up and down? That's the sun god, Ra. And it's answering the question, who are we? We're, ch- we're children of the gods. Where are we? We're here in the land with a sky and lights in the sky that move around. Why are we here? We're, we're here to serve the gods. Who are the gods? Well, these are the gods. We serve them. What, let's, let's go to the next one. Babylonian cosmology. Above the waters is the land of the living. Below the waters, the land of the dead. Each part of the temple pyramid, each circle that goes around, is the domain of a different god. Who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? Who are the gods? Next slide. Medieval cosmology. We're out of ancient cosmology, but I'm, I'm just trying to make a point here. At the earth, this right here is the center of the universe. And outside the earth are four realms with four different elements. Earth, water, fire, air. And then beyond that are the circles of the fixed stars. And then finally, all the way out on top is heaven. Medieval cosmology. And by the way, I'd like to point out, if you disagreed with this cosmology, you're in danger of being excommunicated from the church. Because what we want to do is to take whatever the current cosmology is and staple it onto our faith. Say, this is law. If you challenge this, you're out. Next slide. This is, I looked for, I just Googled modern cosmology, and a textbook called Modern Cosmology came up. This is what I think of when I think of the cosmos. 
This is my understanding of how everything fits together. Physics, neutrons, stars. This is it. I don't have a slide for it. You can just, yeah, I don't have a slide for it. What would a future cosmology look like? We have this, we have this like chronological arrogance that because we're the most recent humans, we're the best ever and we know everything. And that's what every other human generation has thought. What if in 2,000 years, they're like, oh, these idiots, they thought they were on this floating rock through space, when in reality, we're on like this space-time fabric, and it's not like floating, it's like, you know, like, who knows? Who knows? And yet, I've spent so much time and heard people spend so much time arguing about how we're going to fix Genesis into our current cosmology. Are we going to do young earth? Are we going to do evolution? Are we going to do gap theory? Are we going to do... And I think that actually the author of Genesis has something much better and much deeper in mind for us to be thinking about. And I think that we can discover that by taking a slow approach, by thinking carefully, by analyzing their cosmology. This is, by the way, the Hebrew cosmology. You can go ahead and throw it up. Did you guys know the ancient Hebrews were flat earthers? We thought they were relegated to Facebook groups. It's in your Bible. <laughs> you have the earth, and then you have the waters above the firmament. Jesus, there's waters above the sky. Okay? And then on either side of the earth, you have the foundations of the sky that hold the sky up, that hold up the dome. Then you have Sheol down beneath. And then underneath the waters is the great deep. And above all of it, is God. If you want to re-listen to the podcast of this sermon and listen back to these passages I just read, or just read them yourselves, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you'll begin to see this picture forming. Now, am I saying that the whole Genesis account must then be pure allegory and there's nothing literal in there at all? It's not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying. You guys know who Augustine is, right? Probably the most important theologian since Paul. We haven't done better than Augustine's <laughs> since 300. He, he, he said this. Go ahead and throw it up. The days, oh, by the way, I should mention, this is from a book titled The Literal Meaning of Genesis. Okay? Brace yourselves. It's a wild ride. The days of creation, he suggests, are not periods of time, but rather, oh, this is a summary about Augustine's book, not a direct quote of Augustine. It, direct quoting would take way too long. Here's a summary. Uh, they're not, the days of creation are not periods of time, but rather categories in which creatures are arranged by the author for didactic reasons to describe all the works of creation, which in reality were created simultaneously. Okay? Light is not the visible light of this world, but the illumination of intellectual creatures, the angels. Morning refers to the angels' knowledge of creatures, which they enjoy in the vision of God. Evening refers to the angels' knowledge of creatures as they exist in their own created natures. Like, where did you get that? <laughs> Evening refers to the angels' knowledge of creatures? What? What? Why am I making fun of Augustine? Because I never get a chance to, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I'm saying, you, we can take that down. Um, just go ahead and throw up the, in the beginning slide. Um, 
This isn't about allegory versus, versus literal. This is about what lens are you looking at the creation of reality through. Just because one, it's a different lens doesn't make it wrong. If I, walk, if I walk into your house and I say, oh man, tell me about your house. What so far, everyone has told me in, about the story of their home. Actually, my parents own this house. Or I grew up in this house. Or we bought this house a few years ago and then we moved in. And actually, we kind of moved some things around and we raised our kids here. And that's actually the story I'm asking about. I'm not so much asking for the house story. I'm asking for the home story. The house story would be like, well, on this date, at this time, someone broke ground here. You know, and then they did this, and then first they laid the foundation, and then the studs went up, and then they did the drywall, and then, you know, it's this thing, which is fine. I think we have a place for that story. I just don't think Genesis is that story. Genesis is a home story. Genesis is a story about God, Yahweh, creating a home for his people, his partners, to go and create communities of righteousness and justice wherever they go, bringing his rule, his love, his heart over all creation. And so no wonder when we show up at Genesis to debate about it, we say, which house story works better, we're showing up in the middle of a home story. Now, the question is, if we're going to take this ancient cosmology and we're going to say, Genesis is trying to answer these questions, who are we, where are we, why are we here, and who are the gods? Genesis gives us an incredible answer. Genesis invites us into a story. Genesis tells us that our God that we're in relationship with is the God who created everything. Salehammer has this great quote about the purpose of Genesis, about this first line. The purpose of the statement is threefold, to identify the creator, to explain the origin of the world, and to tie the work of God in the past to the work of God in the future. So often in my prayer life, I'm pleading with God as if he were somehow less than the creator of everything. Sometimes I treat God with how much time I give him, like perhaps he's an annoying salesperson. This understanding of who God is, the creator of the cosmos, understanding the incredible vast power within who he is, is the beginning of wisdom. Taking this reality and applying it every day so that our thoughts are continually turning again and again and again to the king. Why be in community? Because we were created to be in community by a communal God, by a tri triune God. Why love your neighbor? Because God loves your neighbor. We make our entire lives a reflection of the one who made us. This, by the way, is exactly 
what the prophet Jeremiah says. This is Jeremiah 10, starting in verse 10. Yahweh is the only true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. When he shows his anger, the earth shakes. None of the nations can stand up to his fury. You people of Israel should tell the nations this. These gods, lowercase g, did not make heaven and earth. They will disappear from the earth and from under the heavens. Yahweh is the one who by his power made the earth. He is the one by his wisdom established the world. And by his understanding, he spread out the skies. When his voice thunders, heavenly oceans roar. He makes the clouds rise from the far off horizons. He makes the lightning flash out of the midst of the rain. He unleashes the wind from the places where he stores it. All these idolaters will prove to be stupid and ignorant. Every goldsmith will be disgraced by the idol he made, for the image he forges is merely a sham. There is no breath in any of these idols. They are worthless, mere objects to be mocked. When the time comes to punish them, they will be destroyed. Yahweh, who is the inheritance of Jacob's descendants, is not like them. He is the one who created everything, and the people of Israel are those he claims as his own. He is known as Yahweh who rules over all. That's your God. That's my God. And I stand in awe, in fear, in joy, in hope of the God who made everything. And what begins to erupt from my heart is the thing that should erupt from my heart in the presence of an almighty God, and that is worship. Praise be the king of everything. Why are we doing this series? Why take the time to go so slowly through this book? It's because we need to. We need this truth in our lives constantly. There was, it was really disheartening. There was a report that came out this week. Um, it was in, this Rele- in Relevant Magazine, it was reporting on it. I don't know if you guys saw this. Um, it was based off of information that was leaked to the MIT Technology Review, internal Facebook data, studies they had done. Uh, so in 2019, this is what the report reads, 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook groups were run by troll farms. I'm going to say that again. 19 of the top 20 Facebook groups for Christians were run by troll farms. I'm going I'm to read now. Uh, This data shows the vast spread of Facebook misinformation is largely powered by coordinated efforts among foreign professionals working together to spread provocative content in the U.S. They have been particularly successful when it comes to targeting American Christians. They split their efforts among multiple pages. They are mostly operated by the same groups. Collectively, their Christian Facebook pages reach about 75 million users per month. 
For the most part, the people who see and engage with these posts don't actually like, even like the page. But Facebook's algorithm is shipping them what it thinks they want them to see. And internal studies revealed that divisive posts are more likely to reach a big audience. And troll farms use that to their advantage, spreading provocative misinformation that generates a bigger response to their online reach. It's almost as if you can't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said that. That's what Wikipedia told me. Here's the thing. Maybe it's not Facebook for you. Maybe it's Instagram. Maybe it's Fox News. Maybe it's CNN. Maybe it's Reddit. Like, it doesn't matter. The reality is, oh, I don't have my phone in my pocket. We carry these devices with us all the time. And the flood of misinformation is, is unimaginable. We have this in our pocket all the time. And the reason why we're going to take an entire series to, if, if you're not there right now, reignite the life and beauty of the scriptures is to combat all this misinformation with just a wellspring of truth and life. And by the way, our goal in this is not to have like better fact checkers or better debaters, but it's in reality to have an entirely different conversation. The goal instead is to seek first the kingdom of God. That's our goal. Go after that first and foremost. Make disciples. Become better disciples. Help someone else become a better disciple. Be communities of righteousness and justice wherever we are. That's our heart. That's our goal. And by the way, I don't want us to feel like we're uniquely being oppressed by misinformation right now. Here's this great quote by Mark Twain. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. You guys heard this before? It's a great quote. Do you know what's hilarious about this quote? Mark Twain didn't say it. <laughs> but it's always credited to Mark Twain. <laughs> This was actually here. Let me read the quote. It was actually first said-ish by Spurgeon. He said this, a lie will go round the world while the truth is pulling its boots on. I know. <laughs> it's so funny. We're, we're not suddenly like, oh, wow, misinformation and lies in order to manipulate us. This isn't new to us. This is what humans deal with. We've been dealing with it for forever. So, where to land? I hope from today we have a couple takeaways. The first is that we appreciate who God is. And we thank him for the gift of life that we have. Yesterday, I, I just sat on the front porch with the girls for a little bit, and it was, a, it was just a perfect moment. Shalom. Everything was right in the world. Obviously, not everything was right in the world. In that moment, it felt like it. We're sitting on the front porch. There's our, we've got these trees in our neighborhood that already have turned that are just gorgeous explosions of red and yellow and orange. And we were counting the colors on the tree and Eden was picking up leaves and we're looking and counting the colors on the leaves and the sky was just this perfect blue. And I was like, man, God, thank you for this. You 
created this beauty. You created this moment to be enjoyed. To slow down. Thank you, Lord. For this last week in community, um, it was so great having baptisms last week, having Lincoln get baptized and Brad get baptized. And um, Brad is in our community group. Uh, uh, we had a baptism party at community group this week, and it was awesome. It was like I sous vide steaks for like two and a half hours and reverse seared them and we're you know, doing butter and thyme. It was just like, oh, it's delicious. TJ, uh, if you don't know, TJ is a single guy in our church, and he's like, what do I bring? I was like, you bring balloons, man. <laughs> we had balloons. It was just a party. It was awesome. And at the end of the night, Brad, and if you know Brad, his story is um, um, a tough one. Uh, has, on his way out the door, he looked at me, and he just said, this is incredible. You all are incredible. And I just stopped, and I said, we're not, actually. We're just people who love Jesus, just like you. We're broken, we're flawed, but we love Jesus. And that's what we get to do. We get to be people who love Jesus and seek out his kingdom first. And we get to do that right where we are in our current jobs, in our current homes, where God has placed us. We get to do it really, really well. So two takeaways. The first, right, appreciate who God is. And thank him for this gift of life. And number two, I just pray the scriptures this week come alive. You walk away reading every day, not checking a box, but digging deep and saying, what is going on here? Some of the chapters have almost nothing to do with Genesis, which is great. So what I want us to do is build a habit of we're just reading something else in the Bible and language pops up and we go, oh yeah. We tie it back. 